Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Integrated Health Podcast. This is Danny Conroy, and I'm joined in the studio with Angelo Keeley, as always. Hey, guys. We are back after a brief hiatus and glad to be uh, bringing the program back today. We have some very special guests here that demanded that we, they didn't demand it, but just them being here demanded that we bring the podcast back. Um, we have Aaron Stern here and Chrissy Orr from the Academy for the Love of Learning, which uh, you're going to be very excited to learn about here. Um, delighted to have you both here. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. To Thank be you here. for inviting us. Absolutely. Aaron Stern is the president and founder of the Academy for Love of Learning. He's a musician, teacher, and internationally recognized consultant on learning. As the Academy's creative and educational leader, Stern designs and directs the Academy's core curriculum and faculty, guides program development, and offers select trainings, in-depth facilitation, and diverse aspects of the Academy's pedagogy. During the early 1980s, Stern served as dean of the Academy Conservatory of Music in Chicago. It was here that he began to focus on learning, educational processes, developing creative experiential curricula that won national acclaim. It was during this time that Stern re-met his mentor, musician Leonard Bernstein, which I can't wait to ask you about, <laughs> and the two embarked upon an intense 10-year collaboration. Stern had already begun to imagine a new institution focused on learning, and their conversations and shared experiences further informed Stern in his quest to find ways to awaken, nurture, and sustain a lifelong love of learning as a means to becoming more fully human. This early work laid the foundation for what is now the Academy for the Love of Learning, founded by Stern in 1998 as a nonprofit think and do tank. Very, very excited to have you. Thank, Thank you for you. being here. And also Chrissy, and just keep me a second here to call up your bio. Chrissy is also with the Academy for the Love of Learning. And my website just went down. All right. All right. <laughs> So let's go off the cut. Chrissy, will you tell me a little about your bio and experience? <laughs> oh my I'm goodness. sorry about that. <laughs> oh, it's an amazing story. So, <laughs> uh, My bio, gosh, where would I start? Well, I am uh, Scottish. I'm uh, born and brought up in Scotland, moved here to the United States, in fact, directly to New Mexico uh, 27 years ago. How did you choose New Mexico coming from Scotland? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, it's what people always ask that, and it's a long story. But I was actually married to a wonderful man that I met in Edinburgh, Scotland. And uh, we were married there. And he actually comes from southern Colorado. And he had family in New Mexico. And I actually have a background, you know, I'm a visual artist. And when I was in Scotland, I was absolutely fascinated with Navajo weaving and wanted desperately to come and meet some Navajo weavers. So when I met Ken, we started working on that. And in 1977, I came here and worked on the Navajo reservation and that was my introduction to new mexico we wow. went back to scotland and that's like the opposite of scotland right like if you could pick an opposite <laughs> of scotland opposite. it would be santa fe new mexico so we went back to scotland long story and then uh, ken decided he wanted to come back and live in the united states and he said to me where would you like to go i said new mexico <laughs> that was it it drew you there. So you were supposed and I'm still to be there. there. And tell me a little bit about your role, and I can read the bio and edit that in later. But tell me about your role at the academy now, and what you do there. Yes, I am um, faculty, so a lot of facilitation. I'm the co-founder of what is called the Alotrilado program, and also the co-founder of the Institute for Living Story. 
Wow. So work very directly with Aaron and our other faculty there. That is so great. And Aaron, what, tell us about the Academy. I mean, I could read things, but tell us, what, what is the Academy of Love and Learning? <laughs> I like that you call it love and learning. Love and learning. <laughs> love of learning. <laughs> well, the story about that was, um, it, it's funny, the name, Academy for the Love of Learning. The acronym is ALL, A-L-L. And um, I, we couldn't think of what to call it. So as you mentioned, Bernstein and I were collaborating um, in the last decade of his life. And he called me up one night at 3 o'clock in the morning. He said, I have the name of our thing, as he <laughs> called it. What? <laughs> and why are you calling me so late? And he said, it's all the Academy for the Love of Learning. Because you believe that if you open up to learning, and I used to say take the lid off learning, you will become more fully human, and you'll become everything you can be. And so all is why it's the right name for it. And I said, I hate it. It's so pretentious. No <laughs> one's going to be able to say it. And that was pre-websites, you know. <laughs> right, this right. was 19-whatever, 86. But I came to love the name, and people hear the name, and somehow it resonates. It says something. So the one thing I would tell you about the Academy is that um, in the last decade of Bernstein's life, his big question was, as he used to say, don't we never learn as human beings? And I was in the midst of studying actually here in Boulder. I had a little vacation home here at the time and um, was involved with a lot of people here who were involved with education. There was a little school here called the September School. Yeah, it's still here. Still Is it here. still here? Still, it, yeah. it had just opened. Yeah. And I was working with faculty there. And I used to put flyers up all over the place um, uh, to invite people to come and explore education and learning and methods that I was developing that I felt were transformative. And were um, so it's, a, it's kind of a long story. It's great. But it grew out of my work as the dean of a conservatory and watching how people learned and composed. It was very interesting to me how you acquired an understanding of music mm. and how sometimes it would kill um, because of all the technique and all the study that you would do, it would kill the basic creative impulses. And so I became very interested in how not for that to happen and to develop methodologies that kept that alive. And all of that um, was swimming around in me, and I felt like I knew how to do that. So don't we never learn, for me, became the question of can we, can we kind of transform ourselves and find our ways into new expressions that actually uh, made us better at being human beings, let's put it most simply. So um, not better human beings, but better at being human beings. More human. More human, exactly. So that, that's kind of what sits inside the academy, and all of our programs and all of our work are aimed at exploring that and learning about that and trying to find our way. And um, it's developed into a very big, we have almost 100 acres of land and stunning buildings that are um, great places to learn. That's the best way I could say it. It's a place to come back to ourselves, become quiet, reflective, observe the experiences that we're in the midst of, understand the meaning of them, um, make choices. And um, so that's all for that. That's now. wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I'm intrigued by this idea of being better at being a human being. Um, I guess I just wonder, like, what is it to be a human being and what's being better at it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it's a poetic device. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, being a human being, uh, no, yeah. becoming better. <laughs> you know, if, if often you know, if you say uh, become better human beings, um, immediately there is an, for me anyway, that implies a certain morality or a certain mm. uh, set of assumptions about what it what that would look like. And I think for me, uh, it's really simple. It's opening up to change. Becoming better at being human beings is actually becoming better at um, changing identity, becoming bigger, becoming more whole, becoming more integrated. And in that, we become more human because we include more. We're more empathetic. We're more compassionate, more respectful, more loving. That's what it means to me. So becoming better at being human beings is a poetic device that avoids the morality part of it. I'm curious, do you, do you feel that we're born that way? It seems when I watch children uninterrupted, they have a natural curiosity. They have a natural essence that somehow gets interrupted by the world in which we live. I feel that. I know His Holiness talks about mm. that and natural Chrissy you've been watching your grandchild yeah. a lot talk tell, tell I know us about I mean that. I uh, <laughs> have a five and a half year old granddaughter now that was born in New Mexico which is so wonderful and uh, she really I love to spend time with her mm. and she really takes me right back into that curiosity I mean there's absolutely mm. no barrier for her and curiosity no judgment, so no filter. No judgment, just, no mm-hmm. filter. You know, and she's absolutely got her eyes wide open mm-hmm. all the time. And that physicality, I mean, it's like Aaron was talking about, becoming fully human being. Mm-hmm. Becoming a full, you know, human being is to actually integrate all of our curiosity through movement, through perception through hearing, listening, using our brain, using our hearts. And you can see that in children. I mean, what I'm seeing now, I mean, my granddaughter's about to become six. I just know that slowly that is going Mm -hmm. to shift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At the moment, she will draw anything. Mm -hmm. But there'll be a moment quite soon probably where she will go, I can't draw I, because she will want to draw something mm-hmm. absolutely as she sees it. Mm-hmm. And then the frustration begins to come in. We slowly become attached to form, it seems. Yes. And, uh, so I think a lot of our work is to kind of release that mm-hmm. and go back to that mm-hmm. essence of curiosity. And so at, at the academy, do you bring groups of people there? Do yes. you bring you training? Tell me, tell me who comes there and what happens on that property. Well, it's, uh, partly it happens on the property and partly it happens out in the community. So we, um, we have a deep devotion to the, the, the place that we are. Uh, New Mexico is an amazing place. Uh, and it has the, the same you know, bouquet of problems that any community has, but it's particularly – Hard there. It's a. It's. I think the poorest state in the country, or the second poorest state of the country. There's not a lot of money, and uh, there's so much heart. I can't emphasize that. And there, there are the um, uh, the presence of indigenous cultures there from earlier days in this country, and it's actually quite alive and vibrant. And we're connected deeply with those communities. So we we. Um, 
We have programs that we do in the schools, but we bring the teachers and the teaching artists. So, for example, El Otro Lado, which is a program we'll be working with and talking about while we're here in Boulder, uh, and Denver and Carbondale and <laughs> wherever else is taking us. <laughs> but, but that program we do, um, we bring teachers and teaching artists into the academy so that they can experience this beautiful learning environment that uh, it's so quiet and so, you know, we believe if you want to change the world, you change yourself. And so the building is designed so that wherever you are in the building, you can look out and you can look into a courtyard that looks into a, another big room that looks out and you can see all the way to Albuquerque. You know, it's, it's inside, outside, inside, outside. And we create a rhythm. And so it, the whole building has these places that, that you can go to and experience well-being and coming and safety and trust and develop real beautiful relationships with people and the learning happens through those relationships so um th that's just one of the programs we have um samples we we have one program called leading by being which is sort of our deepest program and in that we have all of our methodologies are present in that program that's a two a little over two year long program and that that program happens at the academy although now we're we're implementing it in small segments in other parts of the country including at the center for healthy minds in madison at the university of wisconsin where some folks there are, are looking at our work and developing um, measures for the impact of the work that we're doing, which is important, mm. so that we can reach the half of the world that's not interested in our work because they <laughs> want to see the scientific Give evidence. Give some evidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wanted to just comment on one thing uh, about coming back to our natural selves. And the whole foundation of the academy, it started when I was the dean of a conservatory of music, the American Conservatory in Chicago. And a conservatory of music, as Laura knows, <laughs> is a place that conserves music. It's like a museum of music. And I'm a musician. Uh, prim that's, that's the one thing I know best. You know, everything sort of spins out of that for me. But we, so I was the dean of this college, and I love Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, Haydn, you name it, all of them. And I play them all, you know, really well on the piano. But I'm primarily a composer, and I'm interested in what I haven't yet heard. And that's a profound um, thought when you really think about it, the not yet heard. It's the not yet conscious. It's almost about consciousness evolving, if you believe in all that, and I do. So um, these folks would come to the conservatory and there would be these amazing, technically proficient musicians. And they were like, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. And they were, you know, upper middle class. And they had, had privileged kids who had had the advantage of lessons, you know, from when they were in like five, like I had. And they could play major and minor scales and arpeggios at 200 miles an hour and flawlessly, technically perfect. But musically, there was something missing. They were just technically fabulous. Mm. Mm. And then there would be these other kids, and they were garage band musicians, and they were passionate music makers. And they would come in and they would do things like bum, ba da da dum, bum, bum, ba da 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 da. It's like, what? <laughs> How did you do that? 
And so I was fascinated with those kids because I felt like they were breaking all the rules. They didn't know the rules, and they didn't care about the rules. They just wanted to make music. So that group became the group that I was most interested in. The conservatory, of course, thought I was crazy. And they thought, what? You know, these kids can do it. They're, you know. So that became. Um, one was viewed unskilled almost. Like one's not as passionate, one's not as skilled, not as skilled. they're not as qualified, credible. No language, right. no qualifications, yeah. no credibility, no yeah. nothing. They, yeah. but, but as an honest musician, I was passionate about them. I could really hear that these were risk takers, that they were looking for something new. And so, you know, fast forward, I developed a program there. And that program, it was called, they made me call it basic musicianship, but it made it possible to have a five-year program <laughs> for those kids. And so they could have one whole year and get government grants to be able to go to that program. That program, they would come in there and they would do things like I was just singing for you. And I would my the skillful moment for me as a, as a teacher would be to say, you know, um, that's a poetic device. It's an aesthetic device. It's called ambiguity. And I would give them language. And there's a moment when you're just about to do something, and then you switch gears and you go that way, and you open a window. And why are you doing? Well, because I didn't want to do what everybody else. You know, that's boring. It's you know, it's been done. And I and then I would say, well, you know, Beethoven in his Third Symphony had that same moment. And it's in the last movement. And uh, or it's actually his fifth symphony is the one I'm thinking of right now. And there's this moment where he's lost in the woods and he doesn't know where to go. And then all of a sudden he says, ah, and he jumps up and he, you know, would you be interested to hear how Beethoven did it? Sure, you know. And so I play that segment of a Beethoven symphony and suddenly those kids are talking to Beethoven. And in a way, my work is done because they understand now how to preserve their own originality and value that and then go to Beethoven and listen to what Beethoven did and connect. Because it's not about forgetting history. It's about staying in the primacy of experience in your own discovery process. That's, I think, a principle that we can use to find our way to something new. And that's, it sounds like, if I'm hearing correctly, that was used as metaphor for education in general, in which general. is that we're not here to spit back out repetitive exactly. things. That was we're here it. to respect history, to create our own, that's to, to do something new, to that's make right. a choice. That's to right. That's right. That's so cool. And I think Chrissy, as a visual artist, mm. is always, always, and in, in looking at your, your granddaughter and thinking about how do you preserve that in her mm -hmm. and remind her and stay connected to that deep understanding that's natural to her now as she grows older and, and the culture around us demands yeah. that she... Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, if you think about teaching art, you have to really, you know, I mean, it's such a big question. How do you teach about inspiration? So in a way, you have to do what Aaron is talking about, is allow people, find ways, threads, spaces, safe spaces for people to be, to find their own inspiration and to reflect on that. You can't teach it. You really can. You really cannot teach. But you teach, can value it. But you can absolutely <laughs> value it and create ways to value it and allow other people to value it mm. in themselves mm. Mm. because that often is what gets 
shut down. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we use a quote, Martha Graham quote, at the Academy that basically says, you know, we all have our unique expressions. And if we don't allow that unique expression to come forth, then we're doing ourselves and the world an injustice. <laughs> we're withholding. We're it, withholding. It, it will never exist. At the end of that quote is it will never exist in all of time if you stop it. Wow. Because yeah, so, we're unique and yeah. we're all one of a kind. It's almost like you have a responsibility to bring it. Yes. Yeah, and, <laughs> and so that's what we're looking at at the Academy is finding ways to allow ourselves and others to go r deeply back into that space and not be afraid of it and to bring mm -hmm. it forth and keep bringing it forth. So I feel particularly interested in everything that you're saying because I'm one of the, I was one of those kids, right? <laughs> uh, and then I think about all the kids that, that weren't like that. Um, and the ones that like going to school and just kind of memorizing the stuff and mm -hmm. figuring out how to play a certain role, and they seem pretty happy sometimes. Mm -hmm. So is this idea that learning is necessarily with the intention of being a better human, which what I hear you saying is to do something <coughs> new, right? To be able to not just spit stuff back out, but to create something new. Um, is that for everyone? Mm. It's a, it's a question I've asked for my whole life, and certainly since starting this work uh, in particular, which is 37 years now. Um, the best answer I can give to you is, first of all, 50, it's about 50-50. My guess <laughs> is it's about 50% of the people want to be told what to do and mm. do it. The other 50% of the people don't. Mm. And the best answer I can give to you is we have to do both. Mm. And to me, that's unequivocal. And if we have one education system that only plays to that fifty exactly. percent right. and expects the other fifty percent to come along, that's right. It, it would be work a, so well. that's right. It would be a terrible mistake to swing the pendulum in the other direction. We don't have the convenience to have another big, you know, the time, in my opinion, for another big swing in the pendulum to the other side of a polarity. Mm. We have, and I think at the very core of it, Rudolf Steiner, who was a great, as you know, philosopher and educator. Um, and many other things, but turn of the 20th century uh, in Austria, his basic um, communication, I think, as I've studied all of many educators, but his, in this case, um, his basic adage was it's about aliveness. What we're wanting to transmit to each other is aliveness. And if we are absolutely in a program, I don't experience aliveness. I experience people, you know, happy, but with a with a, a lid on, and mm -hmm. so it's relative. In, but it's vibrating in a very um, small container, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's really important to notice that, and understand that there's a there is a management that's going on there that actually can prevent contact with the other fifty percent of the people that are sitting on the other side of the fence. Mm. So I think that aliveness and that be the ability to be in a flow of relationship uh, gets hampered. And I think um, I'd be interested I, in <laughs> talking with you about this sometime. A friend of mine sitting next to me is a musician, and you know. <laughs> I don't know how to bring you bring you into this. Probably we're not allowed to do that here, but <laughs> absolutely we can bring her in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, Is that all right? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. 
Hi, Laura. Hi, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> what do you Laura, have to say everybody? about that as a musician? You were trained as a musician. Yeah, so um, I ended up receiving my master's in vocal performance, specifically opera. And I received my master's, but it was never my path because of what you're talking about. Um, just all the restrictions brought on. Chrissy and Aaron and I were having this conversation earlier today about how do you, where's that line between transmitting everything correctly, but still being in it. <laughs> um, and so for this learning practice, I was trained, I started taking piano lessons when I was four, and I was receiving college credit for piano by the time I was 14. And so it was that very regimented thing of, here's this music, now you play it, and just putting it out and doing competitions. And then when I decided to start singing, it was that same thing of auditioning and you're now in this honors choir and you learn this music and then you do this opera. <laughs> so it was just very step by step. And the one time where I really felt connected wholly to music was actually after I graduated and I was invited back to where I received my master's. And there was an exhibit going on called, um, it was about, um, police force and violence and it was called like necessary violence or something and it was really there were videos of you know people being hosed down on live stream and overturned cop cars throughout and I was invited to sing Bob Dylan text John Carigliano's um, Mr. Tambourine Man yeah. <laughs> and it was this it's new music it's within the last decade but that was the first time because it was also people in New Mexico hadn't heard that <laughs> um but there, there were no mm -hmm. limits. Right. Everything was chaos in the exhibits, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. there were no limits on what I had to do. for all I mean be directly behind me was a screen mm. of this black man getting hosed down just oh every God. three minutes you know yeah. um, while I'm singing Masters of War <laughs> oh my gosh that's um, awesome mm -hmm. I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan too oh, so yeah, like, I'm a Minnesotan so okay, we're, like, my, world, my worlds are all sort of colliding uh, at the moment that's are so justified <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> I find it interesting nope. I, nope. I don't know mm -hmm. if this is a different shot but it's when we talk about how polarized our country is politically and otherwise, and it seems kind of more or less divided down 50%, 50%, or whatever the numbers are. Yeah. And the statement you made about 50% of people kind of liking direction and being able to follow that and stay within within a certain framework mm -hmm. and be content with that. And another 50% really have a deep need to innovate and create and do something different mm -hmm. and move. And I'm not saying that there, I don't know if there's a correlation between those two things, 
But perhaps that there is, or at least in this idea of polarization and that we really feed one group of people, but we kind of, I don't want to say ignore, but we don't look at it wholly. We don't look at it as as both parts being mm-hmm. equal. And holy is an interesting word mm-hmm. when you yeah. look at it with an H instead of a W. <laughs> because I think that tends to happen. I think I think there's in the background, how, do I, how would I say this? It's such an obvious insight, but uh, orthodoxy in religion in experiencing the holy through the regiment versus the whole world of opening to new spirituality and practices that uh, give people access to, a direct access. I mean, and we look at poetry and Edna St. Vincent Millay writing so long ago about you don't have to go to church to pray. You know, it's, it's, there, it, there has been this um, uh, dialectic that goes on in our culture, certainly, in Western culture in general, about these two poles. We can do better than that. We don't have to stick (laughs) in our 50%. We can bring them together. And that's... That's the exciting part. Yes, there's there's lots lots of colors. colors. That (laughs) is the exciting part. That's where, you know, the energy happens, where you bring, you know, the edge. Yeah, right. You know, in permaculture, the edge is actually the most diverse place. You know, the, right. the place where the most things happen, mm. the most things grow, mm. the most potential for mm. growth. Mm. So when you look at it that way, it's really kind of exciting. It really is. Can you share a little bit about how you think about and work with story in this mm. transformational kind of context that we're talking about now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew Sona would talk, by the way. <laughs> so glad you did. Well, one thing I'll say is about it's about identity, and in in a way through story we can in we can first of all explore identity. Yeah, who am I in this story? And there's an opportunity through um, engagement in community with others, reflecting back as we were talking about before, for that story to, to for that identity to begin to become more spacious. So to clarify and become more spacious. And uh, Chrissy has been doing this since before, you know, before God was around. She's been <laughs> other, other lifetimes. lifetimes. Other lifetimes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in the academy, we have many projects around story. Mm-hmm. But maybe, you know, Chrissy, I would love if you would speak a little bit about, you just started to talk about permaculture and seed. Mm-hmm. But maybe something about your connection with place and story mm-hmm. and place would be a good Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of different, I mean, story in a way is such a charged word, you know, like art, you know, everyone Mm. has their own interpretation. And, um, but story, I just feel that, you know, being in New Mexico, especially because of our indigenous cultures, it's an ancient place, Mm. New Mexico, even although the Americas is so-called a young country. When you're in New Mexico, it's ancient. The landscape there has its own story to tell. And I really believe that I have a really deep sense. I mean, I come from Scotland. I know that from Scotland, that when I go and walk the landscape in Scotland, it actually has a story that's Mm. telling me and that impacts me and who I am. And so really, you know, El Otro Lado came out of that investigation of there's some plants and animals that cannot live in another place. 
their story cannot exist in another mm. place. And so I was looking at that for us human beings, especially with migration, immigration, climate change, what's happening in Syria. So we're having more and more people moving. Can us as human beings, is there a possibility we cannot thrive in certain places? Mm-hmm. Our stories cannot evolve mm. and grow. So that's really where that came from. Mm that essence of place. And so El Otrelado is looking at our personal stories in connection to place and how that informs our identity. And then when we actually can access, access those stories and share them, have them witnessed, mm. they then connect back out into the world. Mm. And there's an empathy that grows. I mean, I can look over here at you and have a projection about who you are just by sitting here. You can have a projection about me. But if we sat and really listened, if you gave me a chance to really listen to my story and I listened to your story, it might really shift mm-hmm. how we look at each other. So that's you know, the essence of it. If we brought, you know, mm-hmm. like we're saying, talking about bringing, you know, the Trump supporters and the Bernie supporters together, if you could bring peoples together mm-hmm. in a space where they were willing to talk and listen to one another, you might find there was more overlap mm-hmm. than people think. So that's mm-hmm. really what it's about. I it's about that. human connection. Yeah. It's about our human connection mm-hmm. to something outside of mm-hmm. ourselves too, mm-hmm. to the non-human world. Mm-hmm. It's about deep listening. It's about all the things that I think mm-hmm. actually in this day and age us human beings are longing for. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is disappearing. Mm-hmm. How often do we sit down and get listened to. How mm. often without being interrupted? Can you imagine? Mm. Or just mm. look someone in the eye and sit mm. and talk with them. It's rare. Mm-hmm. It's something that's kind of getting lost. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the essence of our story work. Going back into that, or stories maybe, I mean, that's our personal story. We can also work with Myth, you know, stories, creation stories, are mythical stories mm. that actually impact us, or stories that we remember from our childhood mm. that haven't left us. Mm. We just, um, yeah, I, I was just yeah. going to say, we just did a beautiful project around that at the Center for Healthy Minds. So, you know, thinking about a story, yeah. I mean, just mentioning that, is there a story that comes up for you? Is there a story that maybe you remember from your childhood? Yeah, I I just never drew within the lines <laughs> yeah. ever. And so mm-hmm. when I hear when I hear that I mean I've I've been fortunate enough to find my own path in spite of kind of Catholic mm-hmm. school arm my left arm tied behind my mm-hmm. back to become a right handed person. Wow. Mm. You know, all these kind of things that happen growing up, those mm. stories come up. Right. But I've been really fortunate to have other stories emerge from that mm-hmm. story and turn those stories into something different, 
You know, and when I work with young people, it's a lot about that. Like this has been maybe the story that was handed to you or mm -hmm. that you had, that you're given. What's the next story? I'm very curious. Right. What's the, when's mm -hmm. the first page of another story begin? Um, and so, yeah, for myself, I think that's what comes up is that, you know, it's regardless of what the circumstance is or where we're at, that there's an opportunity to reinvent our story. You know, we are who we are, but that story's still evolving. We're living a story right now, right? There's some. There's another another aspect of this that we like to point to in some of our work. Um, we call it. So, if you can imagine that beneath the conditioning, there's an, an essence. So, you know, this is fancy language, but it's all language is all <laughs> metaphor. And we're trying to point to something. Mm -hmm. So. Um, if you imagine that there is something beneath identity before all those stories that in you responds to stories mm. that you hear. Mm. So some of the work we do tries to get close to that, beneath all of that. And so one of the ways you can sometimes find that in Chrissy's question was uh, aiming at that is, um, is there a story you remember or a song you remember from when you were seven or eight years old that still haunts you? Well, are you really asking me? Yeah. Okay. So yes, that's it, kind it, of where my question is going. It's actually young, much younger than that. I'm three years old, and I'm in a playpen. Dude, I, you got it. I played. That's I played it. Glenn Campbell's "Gentle on My Mind" over and over again. Yeah. I made my there parents you go. play it over and over again. <laughs> and then after that became, you know, this Presley's suspicious mind mm -hmm. in the '45 and. But it, right. certain songs over right. and over. For me, it was very much music, always. Uh, so if you go to that gentle on my mind, and I remember that it's song tune. well, <laughs> that may tell you something about your nature and something about who you are underneath all that stuff. And so in some of our work, we actually render that and we move into non-dominant hand drawing, for example. Or non-dominant handwriting for you that would be confusing. You go back to your left. No, hand. I'm coming. I'm coming home with you. <laughs> Just tell me when you're going back to New Mexico. I'm on board. I'm getting on the bus. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. No, yeah. I, you it, see what I mean. Yeah, and I do. then it's 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 soul retrieval to mm. put it in a kind of funny language, but it's going back to something underneath all of that. And how do we gain contact? Because I think all of us are asking the question, "Who am I?" Right. You know, our our work is, "Who am I?" I know? wonder if. Who I am is unlearning what wasn't me. Well, that's a big well, part of it. <laughs> that's what we feel. Yeah. And so, you know, it takes methods that help to do that sure. and to reach underneath that. And I love what you said. Who said you said that about affirming um, um, I, 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 natural identity, mm. like in your grandchild? Mm. It's not about what's wrong, but it's about this mm. is who you are. Mm. What if somebody would have said to you, wow, you love that song? Wow, draw a picture of that song. You know. With your left hand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how do we establish that? Um, Steiner's work is fascinating because he says that when you're nine years old, I know there are a couple of good Waldorf schools here. He said when you're nine years old, your back teeth come in, your molars. Mm. And as soon as you do that, you become you declare, I am. And there's some physical... Um, aspect of that. So it's manifested by the teeth coming in. Prior to that, you wouldn't say to a child, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? In the Waldorf world, you wouldn't. Because you see, that that requires children to leave the imaginal world of gentle on my mind and ramify and differentiate and uh, b develop that form of egoic structure. And you want children to dwell as long as possible 
like Izzy, uh, as long as possible in the non-differentiated world so that they can just stay in the poetic imagination of life. And if you do it prematurely, then as kids get older, they forget. And they don't have a strong enough anchor in that world to draw upon when they're 30 or 40. It's so funny. I have four children, but my youngest is eight. And he's turning nine at the end of the month. Mm. And over the past year, he's been saying, I don't want to get older. Mm. Oh, bless his heart. Because he lives in that world. And he knows and he sees it. He has three (laughs) older siblings. He sees it come and he's saying, I don't want to. I don't want to go to the next place. And I'm like, I don't blame you. Because <laughs> it ain't better. I'll promise you that. But that's your path and you'll, you'll go through it. But. I, I remember really distinctly saying that to my mom around nine or 10. that it was like, oh, I just, it was like this really intense nostalgic, like it was slipping away mm-hmm. feeling. But when you're speaking about the Waldorf thing, I found that so interesting and in going to this conversation of the different types of people. Mm-hmm. I, was, I didn't go to any schooling until first grade. And was like raised by like cats in the woods and stuff like that, and like <laughs> totally God. wild. Oh, kid. you're like, lucky. Yeah, it was God. awesome. And my little like portable uh, tape recorder thing, you know, I'd record songs and then just like walking around. And my little sister was put into Montessori at like 18 months, mm. and wow, she just crushed it. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. She's actually coming um, Wednesday to come stay with me, and she's just this amazing person. Feels like she benefited so much from it. And I was like. Montessori, like that's the way I'm gonna do with my kids. Like it's amazing, you know. And so um, we have good friends though that taught at one of the uh, local Waldorf schools. Put my son in there. He loved it. And I was kind Shining of like, Mountain, uh, Boulder Waldorf Boulder, Kindergarten, the other one. Yeah, okay. Best playground in town. Right. <laughs> it's the most amazing yeah. playground. So, anyways, he's in there and really enjoying it. Um, and I'm kind of like Waldorf. Like, I don't know. Whatever. I just had some story about one of this Montessori thing. We take him and put him in the Montessori and like he's just like rolling around on the ground and like playing with his blanket and wanting to play pretend yeah, and like yeah. did not work uh-huh. like they were like he's not you know no. not Montessori material Montessori <laughs> material it's true it's, it's and we used to about play Waldorf is very structured you walk into a Waldorf school anywhere in the world and the first grade is painted the same color the second grade is painted the same color uh-huh. I mean it's very regimented <laughs> It's very um, deliberate. Mm. Yeah. So we put him back there and he just plays all day and he loves it. He's like so happy. And so it's just, it's fascinating to me. But because I had this, I was having this thinking about this while we were talking earlier. Like, is it good to kind of push the people that are more towards one side in the other direction? Some to develop that edge, right? Where it's really fertile. Um, It's a bridge. I I don't Uh see it so much as pushing as as much as a bridge building. So if you think about that example with Beethoven, um, it's like you're trying to solve a problem, a musical problem. So there's a certain amount of language around that, uh, which I won't bore you with right now. But but there is a certain amount of language around it. And um, so it's, you know, the language of cadence and trend and um, uh, what do you call that? Anyway, (laughs) modulation and things like that. But, but really, what, what music and also even words are, they're standing for feelings and inner experiences that we're trying to language. Mm. And we're trying to put, uh, you know, Howard Gardner wrote about that in Brain Symbol and blah, blah, blah. I forget the name of that early book of his. But, but what you're trying to do is connect. We all just want to connect with each other and find out how do you see the world? How do I see the world? And who are we? That's the next big question. Not who am I, but who are mm. we? Mm. So if you can build a bridge and and say, oh, 
here's a way that person over there does what you're doing over here. Then there's, there's I think it does generate empathy hmm. and connection and, and curiosity. And the world suddenly becomes bigger and you don't have to give up your identity. You know, and there's a wonderful adage that we work with at the Academy, that you have to have yourself, really have yourself, before you can give yourself away. And so you can have yourself and give yourself away and say, wow, that's amazing that you would look at the world that way. Hmm. So I'd say it's a bridge, and the bridge is right there. Does that, does that Yeah, it totally makes sense. I just noticed in myself that I didn't even want to make him go across that bridge. I want to just like let him be yeah. let him be that kid, you know, like right. why and so in my mind he's still very young. He's only four. It's like Oh my god. I just want to let him just keep being that kid. I, for I, for would, sure. and I for would say sure. you're I absolutely never, right. I never want to know the bitch till he's nine in those moments. Even he's that like I want him to be like, you know, <laughs> Let him 25 keep floating with the fairies and the gnomes. Yeah. You know, like just enjoying yes. it. You know what? And, and Heck, I thing, still believe in the fairies. Yeah, but also what Steiner was talking talking about, and what I think we all have to remember, is we do want to grow up. Mm-hmm. We and we, but it's about how do you keep intact your connection to those other worlds that you're, you're you have naturally available to you. He's going to want to go across the bridge. Mm-hmm. When he's ready. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't make him. I think that's a good strategy. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Sweet. I could go on forever and ever with this conversation. It's been a great half hour. Yes. Can I ask one last question? Of course. (laughs) Sona wasn't going to say anything today. Sona, please. (laughs) I'm just really curious as you think about this next phase, either of your work individually or for the academy, what is it that is like calling to you mm. in the deepest way in the sense of like bringing something forth, like what? Causing beautiful trouble, <laughs> really, I think. And it's time ready, beautiful <laughs> trouble. Love that. Beautiful trouble in any way I can. And I can't really explain what that beautiful trouble will be, but, uh, I think actually we're already doing some at the academy, mm-hmm. and it just needs to expand out. Mm-hmm. So, not keep quiet. Mm-hmm. Allow, allow the voices, the voices that haven't been heard, to actually really, really be heard. Mm-hmm. So. I think for me, it's a very personal story. I, I feel um, there's, I've learned, you know, the founding of the academy for me was, um, in, in the question was, don't we never learn? I've learned a lot about that now. And I feel like I need to put that into some kind of written form. So I'm 68. And I feel like this is the time um, that's harvest time. You know, it's just a natural so to find a poetic way to do that, and I just got myself this little house in Venice, California, and everyone around me is 20, <laughs> and I don't exactly understand what that's about, but it's just beautiful there, and the weather is just fantastic, and um, so I'm, I've kind of created a space for myself that's a, a new creative space, so I'm very eager to um, put some things into writing that will support the academy into its future and also um, organize my thoughts. 
and transmit them. So transmission, something like that. Beautiful. Yeah, Beautiful. thank you, Sona. <laughs> Good question. Thank you so much for coming. And will you come back again when you're in Boulder next time? Sure. Absolutely. For a little conversation. Absolutely. After there's been more beautiful trouble in a book. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you all about it. You might be stealing a beautiful trouble. Be a great it name might for be a book. That is a great name for a book. <laughs> that might yeah. be the name of the book. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful trouble. Thank you for your gentleness. I mean, really, I can see why you love that song. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's very sweet and um, very kind. Well, thank you all for being here. I could go on and on and um, listening to you all, but it's really wonderful to have you here. Thank you for being on the Integrated Health Podcast. Any parting words, Angelo? Uh, Take care of yourself. Sweet.